In seminary, I had a professor that loved to remind us that when the Hebrew Bible was first translated into Greek, the Pharisees wept for 70 days. They wept for 70 days because for the first time in human history, the wickedness and the sin and the gross, dark, dark shame of the patriarchs was on display for the world. For the first time in human history, anyone in the world could read the Hebrew Bible and read all about the X-rated things going on in Genesis. All the dirty laundry of God's people was out there for the world to see. You can read about how Noah, the first thing he does when he gets off the ark is get blackout drunk and naked and pass out. You can read about how Jacob refuses to avenge his daughter's honor because it could offend the neighbors. You can read about how Reuben did things with his father's concubine. You can read about Judah. You can read how Judah, the father of the Messiah's tribe, the father of David's tribe, Judah sins horribly. You can read about it, how he sins horribly against his daughter-in-law. And in our passage this morning, you can read about the shame of Abram. This is the first story about Abram in covenant history. Yahweh calls him, he moves, and then he gives his wife to the king of Egypt. The first story about Abram is one of the weirdest, grossest sins in covenant history. And it's there for our learning because it teaches us the gospel. The gospel is for sinners. That's our theme this morning. The gospel is for sinners. That's what we should learn from this text. Abram is a sinner like you and me, but Yahweh will save him because Yahweh made promises to him. And he is going to save you and me, not because we have deserved it, but because of promises made, promises kept. You and I are going to be saved on the basis of Yahweh's faithfulness and not our own. We'll look at that in two points this morning. First, Abram sins in thought, word, and deed. Secondly, Yahweh saves his people. Abram sinned in thought, word, and deed. Yahweh saves his people. First, Abram sins in thought, word, and deed. We need to pay attention to verse 9. If you have your Bibles open, look again at verse 9. Verse 9 is important because it gives us stage directions. We have some talented young actors among us, Ruthie and Peter. They did very well in the Aristocats production. And I'm willing to bet that if you ask them what they did at play practice, they would probably tell you that a lot of what you do at play practice is stage blocking. Stage blocking is where you figure out where you're going, when you're going there, and how you're going to move when you go. Movement tells a story in the theater. Movement tells us emotional depth. Movement tells us character motivation. And in verse 9, we have stage blocking. We have movement telling a story. Our editors break up the story between verses 9 and 10, but chapter headings, as we said before, even chapter headings in the Hebrew Bible are not inspired. They are editorial and helpful. Verse 9 is setting the blocking for verse 10. It's setting the stage movement. It's giving you the trajectory of Abram's heart. In verse 9, Abram tells us something about his character motivation by the way he's moving. Verse 9 is telling you where Abram's heart is, even in the story of his call. In the story of Abram's call, already his heart is prone to wander. Yahweh has called him out of Ur. Yahweh has brought him into Canaan. Yahweh has fellowshiped with him and appeared to him and given him promises. And verse 9, Abram starts heading south. 
The Negev is desert land in the south of Palestine. It is part of the promised land. It's part of Abram's call to sojourn, but it's the border. The trajectory of where Abram's headed is he's headed away from the altars, away from Bethel, away from Ai. He is moving south and running for the border of Egypt. Long before the excuse of famine, Abram is already headed for Egypt in his heart. And then verse 10. Verse 10, there is a great famine, and Abram goes down to Egypt. All these other places, Abram's been going, journeying, coming, and passing, and now, you know, he he came to Canaan, he passed through Shechem, he journeyed through the Negev, he moved to Bethel, and so on and so forth. But for Egypt, he's descending. He went down to Egypt. A better way to read that is he descended into Egypt. This is a phrase that's going to come up again in Genesis 38. Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adullamite whose name was Hera. It comes up again in Judges 14. Samson went down with his father to Timnah, where the Philistines are. And they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And later on, he went down and talked with the Philistine woman. And she was right in Samson's eyes. This is descent that leads to straying. This is descent that is straying. Abram went down to Egypt, literally and spiritually. The author wants us to see the stage blocking. It's movement we can't miss because it shows us what's in his heart. This is the first story of Abram after his call, and it's the story of him flirting with Egypt and then going there as soon as there's an excuse. And that's the story of the Christian life. The Christian life is the story of the deceitfulness of sin. The Christian life is the story of the good stuff I want to do. That's not the stuff I do. And the stuff I don't want to do, that's the stuff I do. Who will deliver me? It's the story of the heart wants what the heart wants, and the heart wants to sin. Our heart is filled with the love of Egypt. Our minds are dark and are assailed by doubts, and our old man loves the land of slavery and the house of bondage. And so the call of Abram is, I will bless you, I will rapidly protect you, I will make you great and bless the earth through you, I will give you the good land you see, and Abram's response to that call is the smallest beginnings of obedience. He leaves for Canaan, followed by gross sin. He peddles his wife away to the king of Egypt. This is the story of marching toward our own destruction in unfaithfulness. This is the story Of the human heart, Abram's stage direction is showing us our heart. I want to be in Egypt. And not only does Abram sin in heart and thought, he sins in word. Verses 11 through 13, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and then they will kill me. But they'll let you live. Say you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared For your sake. These are the first recorded words of Abram in Scripture. The first thing that Abram says out loud in the Bible is grievous sin. It's a violation of nature. The first story of Abram is him sinning against God's basic design and creation. Honey, you're good looking, therefore pretend that you're you're not my wife so that they'll let me live and take you. This is not what God designed. God designed marriage as a one-flesh man-woman union. It's man and woman leaving everybody close to them, leaving even mom and dad to form this one-flesh union. It's a beautiful, exclusive, 
bond, us against the world. It's, it's God's pattern, one flesh, and Abram is sinning against it. The design in the word of God is husbands, love your wives as yourself, as your own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And Abram's words here are Adam's words, take my wife instead of me. Abram's words are cut and run and save myself, even if it costs me bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Honey, I'm going to sacrifice you to the first Egyptian that comes to knocking to save my own skin. Say you're my sister so that they let me live. Think of the betrayal. Abram's 75 at this point. I don't know how long they've been married, but think of Sarai. You've been married for however long. He's 75, and his first recourse is to cut you loose and give you to the Egyptians. Do you see why the Pharisees wept? Do you see the shame and the wickedness? The first thing Father Abraham does with the promises of Yahweh is throw his wife away. The first thing Abram does with the promise that Yahweh will make him a great nation and give him a seed and bless the nations with him is he throws away his wife. He pimps her out to the Egyptians. Yahweh promises he's going to have a seed. Abram's going to have a seed and a child that's going to bless the earth, and Abram gives away his wife. I know this is politically incorrect to say, but husbands can't have babies without their wives. The first thing that Abram does with the promise of a baby is give away the better half that can bear the child. The first thing Abram does with the promise that Yahweh will curse anyone who even slights him is he begs his wife to lie to protect him and give herself away. And so the first thing Abram actually says out loud in the scriptures is proof of the weakness of his faith and his failure in the Christian life. It's him telling his wife by his thoughts and words that he does not fully trust the promises of Yahweh. His thoughts and words also lead to deeds. Abram lets his wife be taken. Verse 15, or verse 15, the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. This is Genesis 6 language. The sons of God took as their wives whoever they wanted. Abram has led his household and sold his wife into sub-Noahic conditions. Abram has led his family into conditions as bad as before the flood. Abram's first story in covenant history is degeneracy. It's sin so bad that when Pharaoh finds out, even he's disgusted. Verses 18 and 19 should throw us off because Egypt is the enemy of God. Egypt is the kingdom of Satan. And the king of Egypt is the ringleader of Yahweh's enemies. And the ringleader of Yahweh's enemies thinks Abram has gone too far. When Pharaoh finds out what Abram has done, he, he asks him, what have you done to me? He chastises Abram. This is the human representative of Satan's kingdom telling the father of our faith that he has sinned. This is Pharaoh chastising Abram for wickedness. Abram has sinned so grossly that he out-yuck factored the heathens. And brothers and sisters, the application is this. Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. When we are faithless, he is faithful because he cannot deny himself. The gospel is for sinners because it's the story of what God does to people who don't deserve it. 
If the gospel were about how we willed ourselves rationally into something and then held on tight, we would lose us. The gospel is not, I worked myself into unwavering confidence and then never faltered and incessantly was faithful. It's the story of Yahweh is faithful. It's the story of Yahweh saving Abraham and you and me when we do worse than nothing. The gospel is really gracious and really good news because it's Yahweh loved me when I did nothing. He loved me in eternity because of nothing I did and because I did nothing. The, the gospel is Yahweh's goodness and mercy will hunt me down like a sheepdog even though I stray foolishly like a sheep again and again and again and I will live in the house of Yahweh forever. The gospel is good news for sinners because it's the story of Yahweh's hold on us. It's the story of Yahweh makes promises and Yahweh holds us. I'm saved by faith, not faithfulness. If Abram were justified by faithfulness, covenant history would be over in Genesis 12. If gospel were gospel, if the gospel was true and Abram was saved by his ability to hold on tight, to receive promises well and to act like he received those promises well, if gospel were true, we would lose us. But praise God, the gospel is his story. It's the story of a faithful father saving people with a weak faith through a mighty Christ. It's the story of unworthy faith that makes Christ's worthiness our own. Yahweh saves his people by giving them the gift of a faith that wavers, a faith that panics, a faith that falters, and faith that sells Sarai off. But by the gift of that faith, Yahweh saves us. He gives us all the riches and benefits and righteousness and satisfaction and merit and holiness of Christ. It's not the worthiness of my faith that saves me. It's the worthiness of Christ whom my faith holds. Abram and you and I will never believe hard enough. But praise God, we're saved by the one in whom we believe not the strength of our faith. It is he who is able to keep us and present us before the throne. And that brings us to point two. Yahweh saves his people. Why does Yahweh afflict Pharaoh's household? Verse 17, the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. No one else in this passage has cared for Sarai. The world has taken her up and used her. The human head of Christ's church has abandoned and betrayed her. And Abram, the husband, has cut her loose to save himself. But Yahweh cares for Sarai. The king of the church loves her and protects her. Yahweh cares for his people. He sees us, he hears us, and he saves us. Sarai is part of Yahweh's people, and so the keeper of Israel keeps her. Yahweh sees and cares for where a sinful covenant head and where sin has left her, and he is not going to leave her there. And Yahweh is doing here what he's going to do again and again. He's saving his people through judgment. Yahweh saves his people through judgment that they don't get. The plague falls on Pharaoh's house, not Sarai. The plague is going to fall on Pharaoh's house again in Exodus, but not Israel. And that's because the real plague The full weight of God's wrath against sin is going to fall on Christ instead of Israel. The judgment that hits and destroys people outside of Christ is the same judgment that God's people escape through. 
Yahweh saves his people through judgment, and he brings out Abram too. Abram is Yahweh's people, and so even though Abram has done worse than Pharaoh, even though he has been the most disobedient, sinful, neighbor-hurting, God-dishonoring person in this story, Yahweh is going to save Abram because he made an oath to him, and he will keep it. And Abram belongs to Yahweh. Nothing in Abram's life, not life nor death, will ever separate him from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There are real temporal consequences for Abram's sin in this chapter. As some commentators point out, there are some major differences between this chapter and chapter 20, where he does the same exact thing again. In chapter 12, there is no vision in the night where God warns the king before he even touches Sarai, and there's no plea of innocence from the king. I didn't touch her, I didn't know. What we do have in chapter 12 is an angry speech from Pharaoh. Why did you make me take her as my wife? Abram's sin here is mostly, most likely why Sarai remains barren for many more years. Because it's the only way we're going to know for sure whose kid Isaac is. Abram's sin here in chapter 12 has real-world consequences for Sarai, and it has real-world consequences for both of them because they're going to sin against Hagar as a result of that barrenness from this chapter, as a consequence of this chapter. Abram's sin is also part of the messy history behind his wealth. He comes out of Egypt wealthy. Part of the messy history of his wealth is he, he sold his wife. Some people have blood diamonds. He has, I sold my wife camels. But in Christ, Abram's story does not end with his sin. This is not the end of his story. Abram's sin isn't the end of his story because Yahweh saves his people. Yahweh saves his people from our sin. The gospel is good news for sinners because it tells us that Yahweh saves. Yahweh does not deal with us like we sang this morning. He does not deal with us like our sins deserve. He deals with us like we don't deserve. He has removed our sins far from us, and he does not leave us to wallow there. And this is why it's so important to read verses 1 through 4 in chapter 13, because we have more stage directions, more blocking. Yahweh doesn't leave his people in Egypt, and he doesn't leave us in our sin. He brings us to himself. Yahweh brings his people back into the promised land. Verses verses 1 through 4 of chapter 13. Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that they had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev (laughs) as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and I, to the place where he had made an altar at the first, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. In chapter 12, verses 8 through 10, Abram went from Bethel and I through the Negev to Egypt. And now in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 13, he's gone from Egypt through the Negev back to Bethel and I. Yahweh saves his people. He brings them to the altar they had before. He doesn't leave Abram in his sin, and he won't leave you in yours. And Christians, the gospel is for sinners because the gospel is, and that means the gospel is for you. The gospel is for you. Abram's shame is your comfort. Abram's sin is your assurance because Abram's seed is your Savior. In Christ, you belong to Yahweh, and you've been safe in Him from eternity. 
the weakness of your faith and your failures in the Christian life and your deepest, grossest, darkest sins do not separate you from the love of God and the truth of his promise to save you. So when you stray from him, when you sin against him, when you sin against your neighbor and against nature itself, he pursues you. He rescues you. He redeems you. He saves you. He brings you to himself. Yahweh looks at Abram and he sees not the promised doubting wife seller. He sees the righteousness of Christ. Abram, or Yahweh looks at the sinner in your pulpit and he says, mine in Christ. And Abram looks at you and he says, it's as if you'd never sinned or been a sinner and as if you had been fully obedient as Christ was obedient for you. And he says, come to me and I will give you rest. That is free grace. That's gospel. And that is good news for sinners. The Pharisees wept when this story got out and you and I should rejoice because Yahweh's faithfulness trumps our faithlessness and Yahweh is for you and the gospel is for sinners. Amen. At Covenant Reformed Church in Missoula, Montana, we sincerely believe God's Word and faithfully teach it. We invite you to worship with us on Sundays. For more information, please visit MissoulaURC.com. That's MissoulaURC.com.